Father God, I ask that you would send your spirit into our lives, into our homes, and into this church to produce fruit in us so that your will may be done. I want us to all read together now Galatians 5, 22 through 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Continuing our series on the nine characteristics of God that the Spirit places and produces as fruit in the lives of those in whom the Spirit dwells. We've talked every week about how when the Spirit of God, uh, with all of His goodness and all of His faithfulness and gentleness and love, dwells within you in His Spirit, that you cannot help but be contagiously transformed by the Spirit of God living in you. In the past several weeks as we've been doing this, I haven't mentioned this, but if you're visiting with us here today or if you're a new member, and when we started this series some, I think, six weeks ago now, if you didn't get one of the family packets of the nine traits and activities and conversations and things you can be doing in your home, we've got more of those packets over here at the Home Point Center. So after services today, if you and your family, and you don't have to have kids for this to be good, uh, for a family from one to a family of, uh, I think, eight is our largest currently, and I challenge you all to beat that, uh, but uh, maybe not. Uh, but whatever your family situation is, we want to challenge you to be thinking about these things and praying about these things and studying about them at home to come so that what we're doing on Sundays comes alongside what the Spirit is doing in you and in your family throughout the week. Uh, so go and pick up one of those packets if you haven't already. Uh, I want to share a poem with you today. This was shared with me uh, by Jimmy Scherf. Uh, Jimmy wrote this poem in 1998. Uh, it's entitled Love's Fashion Show, and you'll notice the fruit of the Spirit throughout this, this poem. Love is not garbed in emotions, but with thoughtful deeds that are kind. Love's accessories are not just words that impress, nor works with selfish motives in mind. Love is a prism which, pierced by light, reveals rays of colorful hue. The attributes of a gentle heart display a rainbow for our view. Overalls of patience and temperance are donned when a battle ensues. The green shades of jealousy are not love's style when another wins and we lose. A tuxedo of haughtiness or rudeness is never worn by love. Love dons a garment of compassion and the peaceful wings of a dove. The red flashy garment of anger is not in the wardrobe thereof, but the comfy cape of goodness and joy is worn round the shoulders of love. Love adorned in meekness and hope, faithfully trust she will win. Fashions may come and fashions may go, but fruits of the Spirit are still in. The fruits of the Spirit. Love's fashion show. Now, I love the poetry. It, it certainly has a biblical root in all of the different uh, 
garments, being clothed in Christ, putting on the armor of God, and, and all of these different ideas. And, and I love how Jimmy wove the fruit of the Spirit through that poem. You know, one of the things we've been doing throughout this series uh, is looking to celebrate the Spirit in one another. And where we see the Spirit's fruit being in one another's lives, we want to honor that. Uh, in fact, many of you still have those little fruit cards that are in the chairs in front of you. And I encourage you to keep thinking about who is someone who demonstrates faithfulness this week or gentleness next week. And fill out that card and, and go give it to them and let them know that you have seen the Spirit producing that fruit in their life that you've seen that in many ways. And if your chairs don't have them, there's some out here at the welcome booth. Grab those and encourage people with how you've seen God at work in them. But I also want us to take a moment. Uh, we don't have pictures in the PowerPoint today of faithfulness, but I believe that there are pictures of faithfulness in this room. And, and I want us to take a minute and recognize uh, these portraits of faithfulness that are sitting among us this morning. And so what I want to do is ask, if you, were, if you have been uh, married for 15 or more years, or if you're comfortable doing so, if you're a widow or widower who is married for 15 or more years, if you would just stand up for a moment. 15 or more years. Church, I want you to look around at those who are, are standing here. These are those among us who are a living image of the faithfulness of God's Spirit dwelling in them and through them as they remain completely committed to their spouse and their families. Can we recognize and give praise to the goodness of God in these marriages? Just for fun, uh, who's been more than 20? If you're less than 20, go ahead and sit down. More than 25, more than 30, 35, 40, 50. To those of you still standing, thank you. Thank you for being a picture. And you can go ahead and sit. These are living images of faithfulness. Living uh, images that, that we can learn from, that we can, can talk to. And, and if we had gone and asked those who have been married 25 years or longer, was it always easy, what do you think they'd say? Well, Wade just laughed, okay? <laughs> You're in the 15-year club, right? Yeah, Wade knows. It's not always easy. Was it always fun? And they're going to think of so many times that it was fun, but it's also kind of easy to call up a few times that it wasn't fun. But if you ask those couples who have been married for 50 years or more, who have been living out the Spirit's fruit of faithfulness in their marriages and in their families, and their kids have watched it and their grandkids have watched it, what faithfulness looks like in their homes, if you ask them, was it worth it? Yes. Yes. And so we thank you, who are examples in all of those ways, for allowing the Holy Spirit to grow this character of God in you. And that's what it is. 
Now, it doesn't mean that only those who are Christians can have faithful marriages, because we all know people who, who've never been to church in their life and who have a good marriage. But for those who are in Christ, what the Spirit does in us is produces a godly, divine form of faithfulness that allows us to have even more to bring into every relationship that we have, including that with our spouse and our children, with our friends, so that we have a legacy, not just a legacy of strong marriages, but a legacy of faith that is lived out in our marriages, that we get to give to our children and give to our grandchildren, and give to our church. Faithfulness. Faithfulness. And I think that marriage is an incredible example about what faithfulness is and looks like, because when it comes to thinking about what faith is, we have a little bit of an inheritance of the definition of faith that's a little bit weak, in my opinion. That doesn't come up to what we often think of when we think of a lifelong commitment to someone uh, that you're married to, or a lifelong eternal commitment to God, who is the creator, his son Jesus, who died on the cross and was resurrected, and the spirit that indwells us. We're called to be faithful to life in all of those relationships. And yet when we think of faith, what we so often think of is mental agreement, mental uh, Ascent, that we're saying, I think in my brain, in my mind, that God is the one who created, and Jesus lived and died and was raised from the grave, and the Spirit lives in, that, that can all happen. If you believe, you might have faith to be saved, we say. And in the Protestant tradition, there's the Protestant groups for several centuries have taught that as long as you mentally agree that Jesus is God's Son, that He died on the cross, that you can be saved from your sins. The problem is, is this, if that mental agreement in that reality is all that's required to be saved, we look at James chapter 2 and verse 19. In fact, turn over there if you've got your Bibles. James 2 and verse 19 says this, You believe that there is one God? Good! But even the demons believe that and shudder. And so if all it takes to be saved and to be a child of God is that you believe that Jesus is the Son of God and He died on the cross to save us from our sins, then demons have that level of faith. Satan himself has that level of faith. If, if Satan were here right now and we could ask Satan, Satan, do you believe that Jesus is the one and only begotten Son of God? Do you believe that He lived in this world, that He defied your temptations in the wilderness, that He died on a cross, and despite your best intentions, He got up three days later? And that you lost on that day. Satan, do you acknowledge that these things are true? What choice does he have but to say, yeah, I was there. That's what happened. Now, he's not happy about it. He doesn't feel good about it. In fact, he continues to rail against the followers of Jesus because he's just furious that that's what happened. But he mentally agrees that that is the reality that we all live in. It's more than belief and mental agreement that, that is involved in faithfulness. Faithfulness is not just about what's going on in your mind space. 
We know from the illustration of marriage that faithfulness in marriage is observed and made powerful by its duration over time. Isn't that right? Today, I'm excited. Today, uh, Caleb and Dacia are going to be getting married this afternoon. Uh, that's why they're not here this morning. They went somewhere with an early service so they could, could go to church and, and they're going somewhere uh, to get ready for the wedding later. But today, Caleb and Dacia are going to say their vows and become husband and wife. And many congratulations are going to be offered to them in, in that minutes and hours after that at their reception. But here's one thing that I bet you that no, one else is, no one's going to say to them. No one's going to go up to Caleb one hour after he's been married and said, Caleb, I really respect how faithful you've been to your wife. <laughs> I believe he's got faith and hope in his marriage that it will lead to faithfulness, but he hasn't done that yet. Charlie and Chelsea got married a couple weeks ago, and then after a few weeks, not many of us are going to walk up to Charlie and Chelsea and tell them, I really respect the faithfulness that your marriage demonstrates over the past month. There's a lot of things that are impressive about their marriage, but faithfulness isn't one of them yet. Because we get that faithfulness isn't just about saying, I believe that my spouse exists. I mentally agree that we are married. I mentally agree that we've made a commitment to one another to, to be exclusively committed to one another and no other. But what makes it faithfulness is that that mental agreement manifests itself over a large, large period of time. And the greater the length of time that that faithfulness exists, the greater the amount of faithfulness that that marriage uh, demonstrates, that that marriage uh, possesses. Faithfulness involves duration over time. But it's not just about duration over time. I want to look at the larger text that's around the passage I read about demon faith just a minute ago, which is this James 2, uh, verses kind of 14 and following. It says this, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, well, you have faith, I have deeds. You show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe there's one God, good, but even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person. You want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made more complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. James is writing and he pulls two examples 
I love the breadth and the width of the examples he chooses. Father Abraham has many sons. I am one of them and so are you. Father Abraham, Jew of Jews, Israelite of Israelite, Hebrew of Hebrews, and Rahab the prostitute, the lowest of a Canaanite city of Jericho, both demonstrating incredible faith and doing it by their actions. How often is it that God chooses uh, incredible women of faith and incredible men of faith and in the scriptures holds them together so that we can see that all people are called to and have throughout history demonstrated unbelievable faith through their actions and through their service and their commitment to God. And, and James takes these two and he says, listen, faith without actions is dead. It is meaningless. Suddenly when we start to think about faithfulness, we start to get this, this definition that I want to kind of, I want to try and give to you today. Here's my proposition to you today. My proposition to you is this, that faithfulness is, is really better defined as faith multiplied by time, multiplied by action, and it actually is probably better to the English word allegiance. Allegiance. Because we've got this, this baggage from church history where faithfulness has this idea of just being about thinking the right way for a long period of time or having the right ideas or the right beliefs. But allegiance, allegiance has the weight of, of duration of time and the weight of action and the weight of priority and the weight of absolute significance so that faithfulness becomes more about your allegiance to God and your allegiance to your spouse and your allegiance to the church than it is about your beliefs and your thoughts and your ideas. And this really starts to get more and more to the biblical idea. In fact, there's a growing movement today among many scholars and, and preachers to connect the biblical idea of faith more with allegiance and less to belief. Because we can do all the believing we want and never leave our recliner. But Christian allegiance requires something far greater. Christian allegiance requires duration over time and action. It requires doing what God wants more than what you want, more than what other people want, and more than your job requires and your finances require and your country requires. It's about being allegiant to God first and foremost and above all others. And belief means that we mentally acknowledge it, but what allegiance means is that the climax of the Gospels is not the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The climax is when because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that Jesus ascends to the right hand of God. The end of the story is not that Jesus got out of the grave, it's that Jesus is our King. Jesus is our King. Because if it's about the death, burial, and the resurrection, and it's about me mentally believing that, and it's about me just saying, I believe that so I can be saved from my sins, our head is getting in the right spot. But if the climax of the story is Jesus Christ is King, then the part of my story that comes into that is, will I be allegiant to King Jesus? Or will I allow my allegiance to be split between Jesus and my job? between Jesus and money, between Jesus and my pride, between Jesus and my country, between Jesus and my own ideas? Or will I truly make Jesus Christ king and ruler of my life and the world that I live in? 
And we see this in many texts. One of them is Philippians 2, verses 8 and 10, where Paul writes, Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, this is speaking about Jesus, by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Sometimes I, we get the idea that we're doing evangelism so that in this world there can be more of us than there are more of them. But that's not what we're doing. The reason that we do evangelism is this. Someday... A day is coming when every single knee on heaven and earth shall bow before Jesus Christ and crown Him and call Him and praise Him as King. That day is coming. There is no knee that will be left un unbent on that day. The reason we do evangelism is to try and get as many people as who possibly can to bend the knee to Jesus in this life and not for the first time on that day. Because for those who do it for the first time on that day, it, it's too late. It's too late. But for us who bend the knee to Jesus every day of our lives, declaring in our actions over time and our faithfulness, that we are allegiant to King Jesus above and beyond all other relationships, all other commitments, that Jesus and His kingdom come first. Revelation 19 describes Jesus, and Revelation, of course, is, is, a, is a word pictures that describe Jesus in all kinds of incredible ways. And, and in this moment, it's describing Jesus, and it says that coming out of His mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On His robe and on His thigh, He has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. King of kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus is Savior. Jesus is Messiah. Jesus is the Lamb that was slain. But Jesus is King of kings and Lord of Lords. And when we talk about faithfulness, when we talk about faithfulness, we're not talking about do you believe mentally that this is true. What we're asking is, are you willing to truly exalt in your life over time through your actions and your thoughts and your words? And every single moment, will you make Jesus king? That's the question. That's what's at stake when we talk about are you faithful to God? Because if Jesus is our king, then faithfulness means giving our king our first and greatest allegiance over time with action. More commitment to Jesus than even our families. More commitment to Jesus than even our country. More commitment to Jesus than our politics. More commitment to Jesus than our, uh, our own people. More commitment to Jesus than, and we'll be, I might step on some toes here, our sports teams. More commitment to Jesus. 
we sometimes get them a little bit mixed up, don't we? Sometimes if you get more passionate about the news than you do about your Bible study, if you get more passionate about the score of the game than you do about your prayer life, if you get more passionate about a concert that you go to than praising Jesus Christ in the assembly with your brothers and sisters, you've got an allegiance problem and you've got a faithfulness problem because your priorities are out of whack. You've gotten things mixed up. Faithfulness is about getting them reoriented to where Jesus is king. And I want you to hear how differently the James 2 passage sounds if we put in this idea of allegiance everywhere that it talks about faith. And if our faith is more than just uh, belief, if it also involves action. Uh, there's a, Bill's told the story here for so many years, uh, a story that I love and I often think about when it comes to faith. Uh, you know which story I'm going to tell? The guy on the skyscrapers, right? There's a high rope walker who every day walks between two skyscrapers uh, on a high rope and he's got this wheelbarrow and he just goes back and forth, back and forth. And the first day you see him, you're terrified that he's going to fall or drop the wheelbarrow and he doesn't. And the second day you see it again. And by the 1,000th day, you see him up there walking back and forth all day, every day, and it, you're just bored with it. You're so confident that he'll make it, you don't even give it a second thought until one day you go up to say hi to him and you say, I just love watching you walk back and forth with this wheelbarrow on the high rope every single day. The guy says, well, do you believe I can make it across and back one more time? Yeah, of course I believe that. I've watched you so many times, I don't have a single doubt. Okay, get in the wheelbarrow. <laughs> Faith is matched with action. And if the action's not included, then you don't really have faith. And faith over time with action starts to become a lot like allegiance. And listen to what this text sounds like when we think not about just mental agreement, but when we think about this definition of allegiance, which is, I think, something we lack because of our several centuries old bias that we've inherited from the Protestants. We get this. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have allegiance but has no deeds? Can such allegiance save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, allegiance by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have allegiance, I have deeds. Show me your allegiance without deeds, and I will show you my allegiance by my deeds. If you believe there is one God, good. But even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that allegiance without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his allegiance and his actions were working together. And his allegiance was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not allegiance alone. In the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so allegiance without deeds is dead. 
the church has spent several hundred years arguing about which is more important, faith or deeds, works or action, beliefs or whatever. And here's what I want to tell you. It's about allegiance. It's about a belief that is matched over time and it is matched with action and it transforms all of you to become part of the transforming power of the kingdom of God in the world because we serve King Jesus. We don't just believe in him and we do that, but we serve him because he is our good, powerful, ruling king sitting at the right hand of God. So Jesus teaches You can't serve God and money. You've got to pick who you're going to be allegiant to. He says, listen, I've come and I'm bringing the good news, but there's some families that are going to be divided because of this. And the reason you're going to have to be divided in your families is when there's disagreement about me, you're going to have to choose me over your families because I'm going to be King Jesus. Your first allegiance, your greatest allegiance, your faithfulness belongs to me. So the question this week and every week is this. Are you ready to acknowledge that King Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords? The question is, if you're not allegiant to King Jesus, then what's standing in front of him? Because you're going to bow the knee to Jesus. You're going to kneel to him. You're going to bow and acknowledge that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. The only question is, will you do it in this life or will you do it in the next? If today's the day that you're ready to make Jesus King of your life for the duration of eternity with actions and commitment and priority given to Jesus above all others, then come forward as we stand and sing and the Spirit of God is going to come into you And the Spirit will dwell in you, contagiously transforming you into a faithful follower of King Jesus.